0: Hello and welcome to Cup of Tea with UHB Charity, a hospital charity podcast that focuses on inspiring stories from our NHS staff and patients from across our hospitals in Birmingham. I am your host, Ella Icaldon. Make sure to tune in each Friday for a new episode and if you'd like to be featured on the podcast, please send an email to charities at uhb.nhs.uk. I would love to hear from you. Welcome back to a brand new episode. This week, Imran joins me to talk about his heart transplant and the importance of educating BAME communities on organ donation. Imran is a Muslim and is so passionate about teaching his community why organ donors are so needed and how you can save so many lives.
1: After the transplant, I realised that the importance of raising the awareness of organ donation and being, like I said, an Asian Muslim, that it doesn't say anywhere that we can't donate. You know, and I'm not just for all humans. You know, they can get selective. And I've spoke to uh, um, my peers, and I've spoken to some, you know, uh, educated uh, religious uh, individuals, and they've also told me that yeah, it's it's permissible. And even if it wasn't permissible, having received um, a heart, I'd still donate mm-hmm. because I think it's it's the most sensible thing to do, rather than. Burying perfectly good organs in the ground or cremating them, if you could go and save several lives I think it'd be selfish that you wouldn't unless you had underlying health conditions.
0: Organ donation is a personal choice and this is why it is so important to know your family's wishes. If you'd like to support transplant patients like Imran, you can do so by going to hospitalcharity.org forward slash Birmingham Transplant Centre. Welcome Imran, thank you so much for joining me. How are you?
1: Um, firstly, I'd like to say thank you very much for inviting me. Um, I'm very well now. It's uh, been, been a journey. And, Definitely. Uh, I'd like to uh, tell you everything if I can. So uh, invite in, in sizes, but thank you for having me.
0: You are more than welcome. So did you have any symptoms, any health concerns prior to going through a heart transplant?
1: No, there was, um, uh, as far as I was aware, there was, you know, I had no um, no signs, visible signs. I was uh, a perfect young man, you know, with with a family, you know, mm-hmm. and working away hard um, in London. Um, No signs out of the ordinary, nothing whatsoever. It just come out of nowhere.
0: Yeah.
1: Literally just one morning it said, right, um, you need a new heart. It started back in mid-18, 2018. Okay. Yeah. And um, it was just a routine. I was at work and had a bit of a cough. I was a smoker at the time, okay. um, not anymore. And um, I was quite heavy. And I just had this cough, and I ignored it as a, a young man. I played football, played mm. table tennis, you know. And for me, it was um, nothing unusual. You know, one morning I woke up and I said, I didn't. I felt, you know, very tired, exhausted, really exhausted. And I called up work, and at the time I was working for uh, the Ministry of Defence. Okay. And I told uh, my boss then, um, Mr Walker, <laughs> said to him that won't be coming in today, I don't feel too well. He said, yeah, you know, uh, it's a considerable distance that you're travelling from uh, your location. Mm. It's 100 miles one way, oh, so nice. I was travelling 200 miles to work every day. Um, five days a week? Five days a week. So, that is yeah. crazy. So I, I kind of covered roughly about 60,000 miles, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I enjoyed my work, I'm very committed, you know, and um, I, I enjoyed my work. Uh, hence why I travelled so far. Mm. And yeah, I told uh, Mr Walker, they won't be coming in. I uh, sat back at home and uh, yeah, I slept quite a lot. And then over the past few weeks or past few days, I realised I was getting weaker and weaker. My wife at the time, who's still with me, just said, you know, <laughs> bless her, she's done a lot for me. And she goes, we, we, I think we need to go and see a doctor. And mm. uh, I'm quite resilient and uh, I'm a guy. So I said, I don't need to see a doctor, I'll just carry on, I'll, I'll be fine. And yeah. um, the chance, the, the opportunity arises for us to go on holiday and I just didn't feel like going. Mm. It's not like me, who turns up the opportunity of going to, you know, abroad. So I set them on their way with my children and I said, look, not this year, but you have some fun and I'll yeah. see you when you get back. But I didn't, you know, God had other plans or, you know, there was other things in the way for me. And uh, literally they went abroad and then my family, my younger sister, and um, at the time I was living close to my family, they popped round. And they saw me deteriorate a little bit and they said, right, let's get you over to the doctors at least. Mm. I went over to the doctors and um, he uh, checked me over twice. I remember going twice to him. The first time I, you know, my heart rate was slightly elevated. Yeah. And he said to me, you, you, you look very stressed. You need to relax a little bit. So he um, he gave me some um, medicament and sent me home. Um, and then I went back again after three days. And then he said that you were the same. And on the third attempt, I couldn't even get out of bed so he goes to me i want to come and see you Mm. and he he come around and um he checked my pulse and it was 180 beats per minute resting he goes you know what take your inhaler you're still stressed i can see that you look now i was very poor at that time and looking back at it um i was at end stage heart failure and i didn't even know um i just thought you have just got something really bad exhaustion Mm. um and then three days went family were abroad no one come round and um now i know that the heart was slowing down and then literally uh my sister come around and she goes you just don't look well i need you to come to mums so they sort of uh, took me you know i think literally it's like a three houses away but it took me four hours to get there oh it took me one step at a time yeah. and it felt like each step was like i was carrying a mountain on my back um eventually got there and i was i was effing and blinding because I was at my comfort zone and I said, why don't you just let me rest in bed? And by the time I got to uh, my mum's house, I was standing in a pool of water and I thought, oh, you know, what's happened here? Um, and lo and behold, I didn't know at the time, my, my body was full of water. And I thought, you know, uh, I've done a little misdemeanor here, you know, but the water, my mum said, was coming out your eyes, from your ears, yeah. from your nose, um, everywhere, wherever there was, uh, a place that water could come out, it came out.
0: Mm.
1: And at that point, alarm bells were ringing. Um, I just thought, all oh, right, okay, either it's cancer or something serious, get me to the hospital. Even at that point, I never panicked. So we whizzed over to my local hospital. We thought we were dehydrated because I hadn't eaten for several days. So at the time, the doctor thought, right, let's give him some water. And that's what I didn't eat because they accidentally put water in me, But which is fine, uh, you know. Um, and then... A doctor come round, he checked my lungs, and he goes, oh, you've got a lot of fluid in your lungs. I said, what does that mean? He goes, uh, we're going to take you upstairs, it's quite serious. Mm. So they took me upstairs, um, and this was at my local hospital. Um, my younger sister was with me at the time. Our family were still abroad, they were going to come back the next day. And they did a couple of scans. As you put, they put IV in me to get fluids in. And then the doctor come round, and they said, you're really, really poorly, run. And he goes, we're not sure, but you've got thousands of clots on your heart. And I go, sorry? Um, because yeah, you've got, we, your heart's covered in clots. And if any of them clots come out, you're not going to make it. Uh, people die of one clot, you've got thousands. Mm. And we've got the image of today. We've still kept that image of the x-ray. Um, and my younger sister then called family, my elder sister, who then in turn called my mum. Uh, they didn't tell the parents straight away uh, because they didn't want them to panic. So the two sisters, took it on board because the wife wasn't around, she was abroad. And then um, sisters, they kept me in, uh, at the hospital during the night, and said, you, you're in for a journey, so we now need to start plugging you in, which meant they'd have to put cannulas in everywhere and all the rest of it. I still didn't panic at that time. I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm alive, they can fix me. Uh, but slowly it did creep in. And then uh, that night was an awful night, I just I was restless. And then in the morning I woke up and I was very, very ill. I, you know, it was just like barely open my eyes. And the doctor told me the severity of my ins- of, of the issue, the health issue. And um, they were talking about mechanical hearts. They were mm. talking about all sorts. And at that point I started getting a bit worried. And my sister said, you need to choose a hospital, Imran, um, because that's where they're going to take you. And the choices were Royal Infirmary Leicester or Queen Elizabeth Birmingham. And I know I've got relatives in both places, but I don't know why, but I chose Birmingham. And it worked out to be the best choice. Um, I have a young friend uh, who used to live in my locality. His name's Yusuf, and uh, he now works as a senior cardiac con- cardiac cardi- consultant mm. in Cardiff. And he's just a little bit younger than me. And my sister reached out to him and said, "Look, this is what's happened." And he messaged me back immediately and said, "Look, there's hope. There's medicine that works. You know, you're probably be devastated with the news right now, but just keep keep your faith up. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you get to QE." Q- 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 there's, a, there's there's something we call the A-team there. And he mentioned a few names, uh, which was, if I could mention, which yes. was Do- Dr. Lim, Dr. Mascaro, Dr. Ranasinghe, Dr. Majid Mukaddam, to name a few. Mm. Um, I actually know every single doctor's name now who dealt with me, including the profusionists, including the anaesthetists, because I was in the hospital for a long time. And he goes, if you get this group, you'll be fine. Um I chose Birmingham because my, family's, uh, my wife's family and my parents got relations. And I landed in Birmingham, Kiwi, the very next day. They were going to airlift me, but they took me by road. And I landed on the 18 table straight away. And I thought, OK, that's one part done. Mm-hmm. But at that point, I didn't know that transplant was in order. So I got there. very, very weak. Hadn't eaten for almost over a week now. And I just couldn't stomach anything. The thought of food was just making me puke. Um, And now looking back at it, the doctor said, because your heart wasn't operating properly, you were shutting down. Your whole body was going to shut down, and you would have just passed away peacefully in your sleep. You just wouldn't have known. You weren't going to have a heart attack. Um, Your heart had lost the ejection, Mm -hmm. which means the pumping value, and you would have just drifted off and gone to sleep. When they measured my heart when I landed at hospital, it was at 2%. So the, the, the healthy heart should be around 55, 56, 60. Yeah. Um, and you're at 2%. So they took me in and they gave me my own ward. Parents come down. My wife uh, brought the children down and then we sat down and we discussed and they told me bedside that you need a new heart in run. It didn't register at first. And that was Brian, the transplant coordinator. tells goes to me, you need a new heart. And I sat back, I was in bed. Um, and, uh, It, it kind of, I was thinking maybe they'll put a stent in me
0: Mm. or do
1: an open heart surgery, you know, I was thinking, yeah, I'll do that. But when they said a new heart, it just like, it's like, I've not learnt about this. I've not thought about this. It's just happening. It's it's in the here and now. And he goes, I'm going to need a pint of your blood and I'm going to put central lines into your neck. No, I don't want to go in too much detail because I want to save some for hopefully the book mm-hmm. that I'd like to uh, to write up afterwards as well. Um, and so, yeah, we went in, um, took a pint, out of, a pint of blood out of my uh, main veins and they put some central lines in. And then um, I don't remember anything in the operating theatre. Um, so before I went in, my friend was there. Uh, I think there was, yeah, excuse me.
0: It's fine take as many breaks as you need absolutely fine do not worry i can always pause it and you no, can tell okay. me when you're, um, you're comfortable you don't have to talk for anything that you're not comfortable with no no of course so. of
1: course of course no. um so he was there uh we call him kb for short my sister was there my family um, and my wife was there as well my children were there they were being looked after by my sister-in-law who lives in Birmingham so it all helped out so she was very very helpful as well I think equally both sides of the families were very helpful at the time uh you have ups and downs and you have like you know misdemeanor disagreements but that's part and part of life I suppose you know it's how you take it um so they took me into the theatre and I think my dad's kept a few pictures and they were very very uh I wouldn't they found it sort of shocking um eye-opening they wouldn't say it was disturbing. They were just shocked. It goes, it wasn't even howling. It goes, we were just shocked because most people when they come out of a, a theatre room, they call it the Christmas tree with all the lights on there, and you know, because there was no space for anybody to walk. You were literally had three Christmas trees down one, with every fluid going mm. three down the other side, every fluid going, and when they walked you in, it felt like half the Queen Elizabeth Hospital was attached to you in ran. Um they were all in shops, some people fainted, you know, they just did not see this. And obviously they cut me open that time um, and they did a bit of work inside. I think they put a, They put a, I think they put an LVAD in or something first to see if they could aid the heart. Mm. Um, and then uh, I didn't wake up for a while. I was in a deep sleep. I remember that was the first time I went in and then I had several operations since i come back around and then I'm now talking from what people have told me mm. um, because I didn't remember some things but whilst I was asleep I remembered the entire journey as well that was that was amazing because I mean some people will say that you know you dream you know but I've seen things I've been places I remember things from past that when I was a child um, and also, you know, I, I saw things, not premonitions, but I, I felt like things were going to happen and they have since my operation. Um, one particular event was, you know, I dreamt of a huge tsunami. Mm. And I, when I did come round, I asked my mum, was there any natural disasters? And she goes, there was. In the Far East, there was a disaster in 18. And I go, I felt like, I, you know, I dreamt about that. And uh, she goes, well, you're right, because there was something there. And more, shockingly, whenever I speak to the doctors, Um, the doctor said, we had to put you back to sleep because you woke up on the the operating table once, you kind of opened your eyes, and then we put you back to sleep. And he goes, you're very, we we didn't want to use the word restless, but you're very, very active. Mm. And we found it extremely hard to sedate you, uh, you know, more than usual. And um, so we had several operations. Obviously, the ALVAD failed, so they had to reopen me, and they tried other measures. And eventually... They said we couldn't save his heart, so they'd put me on dialysis for my heart. As the months went forward, I, I slipped into a coma. I was I was under for over a hundred days, maybe more. Oh, wow. Um I remember them telling me that they'd come and wash me, they'd come and bathe me. You know, this is a young man who's who's bathed himself, you know, uh, you know, didn't need any, any anybody's assistance and now it's like the whole world's caring for me, you know. It kind of brought me back to rea- reality. And then I remember some days, um, after several operations and when I, when I was put on the transplant, when they said, "Right, man, it's time to give you a wash," I panic, because I didn't want anybody touching me. You know, uh, uh, it felt really alien to me. I was like, you know, I don't need anybody's help. I'm a man, but it kind of humbled me in such a way to think that sometimes, no matter how big, tall, high, but you know, you are, life has a way. <laughs> it you know teaches you differently. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so I had several operations. I now understood that the day I woke up was the day they were gonna switch the machines off. Right. Because they told me, they told my family at the time. Um, in fact, they told my older sister that he's gone into what we call acute failure in all his body. So Ella, that meant that my lungs had failed, my kidneys had failed, um, my liver had, everything mm-hmm. had failed because mm-hmm. the heart wasn't working. and. The doctor then explained to me perfectly, it's like M6 on a motorway. If there's an accident at the front, everything gets backed on. Yeah. If you don't clear the accident, nothing else flows. We couldn't make your heart flow simple as that. It it dilated from the size of um, a tennis ball to, to, to the size of a, a mini football. It just literally, mm. there was a huge crevice in my chest. And um, because you weren't responding, we had to take you off the transplant list as well, which we didn't tell the family about. So you in essence became almost a donor for somebody else. Yeah. And then the day that we're going to switch the machines on, they told my sister a week before. Said on that Friday we'll switch the machines off. My mum, and my my mum took it in terms with my wife, and she was there for a lot of the time. Which, <laughs> looking back at it, my wife felt, oh, you know, I need some time as well. But mum's mum, I suppose. And the doctors said whatever you're doing, mum, carry on praying because towards the end they saw that the. Um, My waters had changed Mm -hmm. colours from very dark to being normal. So he's showing signs, but he's still asleep and we can't wake him up.
0: Yeah.
1: And then on the Friday when everybody come round to the table, mum was thinking it was routine check. But my elder she knew that they're going to switch the machines off. They were all praying. And then I woke up. I literally woke up and... The doctor at the time, they're like, okay, he's, he's showing signs here. And mm. uh, so they give me another hour, they give me another hour. And eventually I woke up and I saw my mum and my wife. And they popped around and said, right, now that you're awake, stay awake. And I kid you not, and, and to the audience who are listening back home, I didn't sleep for seven consecutive straight days. So I looked at the clock and I could watch that second go round every minute, every hour. Twenty four hours a day, and I was frightened. I, I'm a you know, a young man. I was frightened. You know, the, I l- kept looking and I didn't want to sleep. I was just looking around and you know finding inspiration from anything. And then I looked down at my stomach and I just saw these pipes and I thought, oh my god, what are these pipes doing yeah. in, in me? And there was about six. So there was four that were for the heart. There were two that went into the lungs for the mm-hmm. for the drainage. And there was a lot of tubes. And I thought, what is going on? And the doctors, you know, gave me a day or so, and then uh, it was Dr. Lim and his team, Dr. Muscaro, Dr. Rana Singhi, lovely chap. They're all lovely, to be fair. They're all amazing. I call them angels on earth, literally. So they come round and they said, Dr. Lim first said to me, you're very, very poorly in mind, um, but we're going to do what we can. And when I woke up, my family told me that they put me back on the transplant list as a critical uh, recipient that mm. needs one and my, my details were shared all over Europe, everywhere, and um, and look again, I woke up, and then within a week, I had an offer of a heart, and I looked around, and the the procedure's quite daunting, because they have to call the family, the family have to come in, irrespective of what time it is, they have to travel, they sit in a room, the doctors analyse the heart, which is brought from, uh, you know, from a, from a sad scenario, yeah. and they analyse it, and then, they told me no, it's not good enough for you. And I go, what do you mean? Because it's got coronary heart disease. I said to him, I don't care what disease it's got. I'll make it better. I just need it. And that was me being desperate because I knew that without that, I'm not going anywhere. And uh, they said sorry. And you know, I, I I my my pillow was wet. I was crying again. And then uh, within two days, another heart came. And I thought this has got to be it. This has got to be it. And again, the same procedure. No, a second time, I said I don't want to know. I'm you know. There's people before me, and I'm crying because I've jumped the queue. Yeah. How selfish of me. But at that time, I was only thinking about myself. And my mum always told me that you've never put yourself forward in life. you always put others before you. The third art heart came in. They said it's a perfect match. Literally, I hadn't eaten for over... This is coming to two months now. I've been in a coma, woke up, and they go, you need to sign for this. Um, and again, I kid you not, I think a, a newborn baby would have more energy than I had and they had to lift my arm up and they had to sort of sellotape a pen to my hand and literally I just went left to right and they, somebody recorded it um, and they said right you're going, on, you're going in the operating room so we're going to get you ready. Up until then I had several other ops so the, my, my chest was open about four times I remember and they were playing around inside trying to fix things and eventually yeah, the other heart came and they took me into the theatre room and then the, I had over 60 hours maybe more of operations and the last one was going to be 12 hours and they brought the family in everyone was excited as you can imagine because everyone's going to get a heart mm. but it was a sort of a sad time because i knew selfishly that a life had been lost somewhere else in order for me to live so that thought kind of lives with i think most transplant patients it always does because i mean some of them have survived you know if you have to give a kidney um, you know other people can survive but the, i knew this gentleman had passed away and uh, it was of a you know a car accident. He was 10 years younger than me as well. So I gained a relatively young heart. And um, yeah, they brought me up fairly quickly. And all I remember was when I came round after the sedation had finished, I felt an almighty bang in my chest. And the bang was, I was like, what is that noise? I kept asking, what's that sound? Mm. Um, I couldn't talk properly because I had a, a tracheotomy. So I was just like trying to push down and speak. and. Believe it or not, I had so much energy just moving my arms around with a new heart. And uh, they go, is that your new heart in Of Because you're joking. <laughs> and I was like, wow, it's so strong. Because the other one was so weak. Yeah. It, this heart felt like it wanted to come out the chest. Like it was just beating away. And they, they got me in. I remember I was so thirsty, so thirsty. It was unreal. I you know I asked for a drink and they said, you can't drink because you're going to throw up. I said, I know, but I just want to quench, uh, get rid of the dry mouth. So I took a big swig and it came back up, unfortunately. And then they cleaned me up and I just rested. And I just, that night must have been the first night after three months I slept properly. And they were monitoring me very carefully because the doctor said to me that when your new heart came, we actually stopped that new heart from beating because the process was that we took your old heart out. We left you on the side of the room, with your chest open, you had no heart in you. The other heart was on its way. It's mad, isn't it? Imagine. It is, it its I is. can't even, like, um, You can't imagine it, you can't imagine it. So I'm thinking, I'm in the corner, and I remember some of the stories, <laughs> even without the heart in me, because I, I told the nurses, right, whose son was this? Who ordered pepperoni and anchovies? They were like, how do you remember this? She goes, wow. A new heart came in, uh, in a box, and uh, they said, we stopped the heart by giving it a big adrenaline, and it stops. And then we start putting it inside your cavity, into your chest. And then we give it a shock and you came back round. Yeah, I think I didn't look back on straight away what had happened. Um, I was still very, almost still very concerned, very worried, lots of questions in my mind. You know, what's gonna happen next? Am I gonna be normal? Will I have another heart attack? What will life be like? I had so many questions, but they put, you know, it it was all gonna follow slowly. Um, The rehabilitation, the physio. Um, So yeah, I kind of, I kind of woke up so that the next few days progressed and family members, you know, spread the word in the community. Said so Imran's received a heart and, you know, people were happy. There was a lot of people praying, a lot of people messaging me. The phone was switched off at the time. And I just remind when I did switch it on, I think my phone crashed because there was over 1500 messages, 2000 mm-hmm. messages, as you can imagine, mm-hmm. from abroad, from friends, from family, from ex colleagues, um, um, and current colleagues as well. And then literally, yeah, every day they'd come and dress my wounds, you know, because I had a big scar, I had skin graft done. um, And then there was a point I just remembered that when I had the tubes inside me, um, I could almost, on the skin I could feel, it's damp. Mm. And when I looked down once, it was covered in the pool of blood. And I thought, what was that? And mum's come round and uh, the gentleman said, ah, actually, one of the tubes that goes into your belly, to the heart, it's leaking. Um, and one of them also had a clot inside the tube, so they had to do an emergency operation bedside because one of the arteries, or what we say is one of the tubes was clot, okay. so they had to clean the clot as well, so. mm. and at that time uh, it was leaking, so they, they did a live stitch, and I was awake to see this, and uh, I looked down, and I couldn't feel anything because they gave me local anaesthetic, and I'm thinking, wow, this is, a, this is really, really a, a real test here. Um and you know a dose back off, but that was mid-operation, so I've had the new heart and I was asking lots of questions. Um, I'd lost the ability to walk, talk, sleep. Um, I wasn't unable to get go to the toilet because they've made provisions for that as well, mm-hmm. and I was, I was really upset, but I was really happy as well that I was you know I've been given the gift of life. Of
0: course,
1: it was massive, and I knew that that's like sort of part of the journey. Over, but I know that what's going to come next is going to be harder. Um, and they told me you can have some medicines, uh, you can have regular biopsies, um, and there's going to be other things that you need to cater around for your life. And then, um, literally, uh, I went for a few biopsies, and they told me about rejection, uh, something you know I I didn't know about at school or anything. And then I started researching, and they told me how severe rejection can be. And then I realised quickly that right. In life, that can happen anytime for me, mm-hmm. um, and that's something I've got to live with. Um, and I have done so for the past couple of years. It wasn't all doom and gloom. It was a very, it was it was a very bittersweet moment for me. Of course, um, you know, I'm very grateful. It was a sad story, but was it was it a sad story? It was meant to be for me. Um, so it was a challenging story. It wasn't a sad mm-hmm. one. It was challenging, and um, I've. I've managed to turn it around into a positive outlook, Definitely. and I and I show my children, um, especially my kids, because um, they sort of thought dad's not coming back. Yeah. But I did tell them that dad's gonna fight, and you know, I've been back abroad with him already. I've been swimming. They've seen the scars. They kind of show it off a little bit. So mm-hmm. my son, you know, thinks I'm an iron man, but I'm nothing <laughs> like Robert Downey Jr. Mm-hmm. But. Um, yeah it was a challenge um, at the hospital, and there's so much more I could go in depth, but you know there's a there's a i want to um I want to raise a charity i want to do a foundation there's so much I want to do because there's other people out there that need to know how important it is not just to receive
0: mm-hmm.
1: but also to give uh me being a british Muslim Asian I was born and bred in this country, my dad, who came from India made a, a life for us in this country. He worked very hard, worked for British Telecom um, at the time, and put us through school. Some of us went to universities. Um, some of us decided to go to college. I had the opportunity to go abroad and work with my father. Mm-hmm. And I come back and give my services to England. After the transplant, I realized that the importance of raising the awareness of organ donation, of and being, like I said, an Asian Muslim, that it doesn't say anywhere that we can't donate. You know, and I'm not just for all humans. You know, they can get selective. And I've spoke to uh, um, my peers, and I've spoken to some. You know, uh, educated uh, religious uh, individuals, and they've also told me that yeah, it's it's permissible. And even if it wasn't permissible, having received um, a heart, I'd still donate mm-hmm. because I think it's it's the most sensible thing to do, rather than burying perfectly good organs in the ground or cremating them, if you could go and save several lives, I think it'd be selfish that you wouldn't, unless you had underlying health conditions. And obviously I've mentioned the book. I've got to write a book because there's certain things I haven't mentioned today that are that go deeper and it will just literally send goosebumps down your body. And, I think
0: it'd be fascinating. Um, I'd definitely read it.
1: Yeah, so hopefully I'll do that along with the the charity and the foundation i managed to reach out to a few celebrities recently. Um, I met a a USC star, a Khabib who came to London Mm -hmm. for um, a charity event. Um, I've been abroad a couple of times. I'm hoping to see uh, um, a few of the celebrities. I'm hoping to see Amir Khan. um, And I'd like to see some footballers very soon. Andy Cole, who's received a organ, I believe it's a kidney uh, transplant. And he was going to be at the British Transplant Games hopefully uh, next year Mm. um, and the European Transplant Games. So hopefully I'd uh, like to meet him there um, and discuss, you know, how he felt, what journey he had gone through, because I know he raises awareness as well. Um, And I'd like to meet out to some of the footballers who've recently had heart issues as well. There's the book, there's the foundation. And obviously I'd like to meet certain uh, individuals. Since the transplant, I was able to do normal activities. The hardest part was physiotherapy Mm. i lost the ability to walk talk sleep everything i was like a newborn baby when i got home and eventually i got it all back had to change my diet a few a little bit (laughs) but i do have a a cheeky greasy burger (laughs) now and then who doesn't but i'd say to a lot of people i am living a normal life i don't get put down by the fact that what's happened to me it was just a test i've passed that test they were giving me less than one 1% 1% chance to survive, um, and I survived. I'm losing my way a little bit, so do ask don't, me some questions. Don't
0: be silly at all. I am I just think, wow, what a story. And I think this book as well will be incredible for patients that have gone through, transplants that are going through it, but also people like me that have no idea what it's like to actually read your story, I think would be fascinating.
1: Again, I don't want to go into too much because I've read it for the book, but there was a night, um, my dad came in, my grandma, and we had the ward around, which is where all the doctors come. Mm. And I looked at my phone and said, let me just put this away. There's just too many messages. <laughs> and all the doctors come in. And one of the doctors mentioned, oh, there's five generations here. He was quite quick to notice that there was great-grandma, grandma, mum, dad, kids, and the kids, kids, kids. And he goes, well, how wonderful. So he goes, there's a strong lineage there. And he said the word strong. And then my dad came in. Now, my dad's a, he's, he's Superman to me. I'll tell you why. Because he, he was born in 1954. Uh, He'd come in India. He'd come from India in 1966. And he had polio in both of his legs, mm. childhood polio, and I'm forever grateful to God and for England because they put him into a program for ten years. So Dad was 12, and they really built him up. They sent him to Leamington Spa, and um, they put counterweight on his legs because his legs were all crooked and crumbled. Yeah. and they straightened his legs out. The um, they straightened his spine out. They gave him lots of injections and administered steroids. And he was very big, you know, for 10 years, weight training. He's actually, he can do the butterfly without the use of his legs. You think about that for a second. Mm. Most guys need the hip and the legs. And most listeners are probably thinking, well, was everything working down below? Well, it was because I'm here today. And he's had three (laughs) of them. So we're strong with four. And for 10 years, he was in in the gym. And the doctor at the time said, no, you're going to get through life, Mr. Voraji. And he asked a question that, will I ever have kids? And he goes, yeah, you were perfectly born, but mm-hmm. you're just going to be disabled, registered disabled. My dad can swim. He can do everything. He's been across the world. Um, he's taken me on many holidays. Um, he's an inspiration to me. He literally uh, came into the room mm. with the doctors. And I saw him, and I'm thinking, he's got no legs. You've got two good legs. Although they might be a bit skinny and you're emaciated, get up off your ass and get inside. <laughs> and literally the record at the hospital was somebody receiving a transplant after 100 days was in the gym after three weeks. I was in the gym after 13 days. Just got up, I saw my dad for a bit of a laugh. When they all left, I was so fired up. Mm. I had some tuna pasta, because I know pasta gives you sudden burst of energy. And I literally used a frame because I needed assistance. I didn't call the nurse. I dragged myself out of bed. I almost fell. Um, I used what we call a bull pit frame, it got me out of bed, and I just walked up and down the ward all night with a new heart to write, and the nurse said, well done, because you you weren't supposed to do this for Mm. another week or so, walked up and down, and they said, if you climb a flight of stairs, you can go home, I did that the next day, so within 14 days, after the heart, I was home, so it just shows you that the mental mind, Mm -hmm. and the power of your mind, if you program it, you know, you can achieve great things. But my message today would be, you know, to people that, you know, we need to get onto the, the register. We need to, all of us. Mm. The chances of you becoming a donor is, is quite remote because there's so many um, things they check for, the blood type, the tissue type, so much. And when you think about that and think that, oh, wow, I've got a heart and I was much, how lucky must I have been, you know, it's just, it's just huge. Yeah. And I've got to return that favour. I won't stop. Um, absolutely no um, until I've you know raised the funds set up the foundation or the charity um, and get a constant stream of support to the QE and to other charities you know and I hope that the people I reach out to along the way can help me reach that milestone mm-hmm. because ultimately if you save a life you save humanity and those people that help can raise the awareness, or help me raise the awareness. Definitely. And that's what I want. And I take inspiration from other transplant patients as well. Martin's one of them, I've met other people as well. And I think there's positive energy that we bounce off each other. And then I think just before I wrap up, if it's okay, um, the year I left hospital, a year later, my friend in Leicester, two brothers, they're also British born, mm-hmm. Muslims, and one of them had uh, kidney failure. And his brother happily donated his kidney without a thought, yeah, he just said, yeah. right, take it, he didn't even care, so the other brother's now got three kidneys, because they left the other two in there, mm. in case they ever come back, and he's got his brother's kidney and he's living life normal. and again, that's another Asian uh, Muslim family, yeah. so I'm hoping that more Muslims do consider, do go on the register, and yeah. uh, not only Muslims, but from the Bain ethnic group, mm-hmm. you know, um, everyone should consider this, and I will continue, uh, you know, to... Uh, not so necessarily argue but put my points across yeah. and say, guys, you know what, rather than degrading, rather than cremating, let's help another life. Yeah. You know, whether it's British, Scottish, Welsh, Asian, Sikh religion doesn't even come into it.
0: Well, I think you're doing an amazing job, despite well, you've only been twenty eighteen wasn't even that long ago, was it? No, and it wasn't. all the these incredible things that you're doing. I'm really excited to follow your journey and see all the incredible things that you get up to in the next few years, because I think you've got huge, huge potential. You'll go massive with this. And especially talking about the religious side of things, I think that's a really great point. It, you know, you're educating your own religion, bane communities as well, which I think is really important.
1: Thank you, Ella. And I think it's, it, it's not so much... I, I think it's more about raising the awareness, mm-hmm. and, and that's all it comes down to. Yeah. I think people need to be educated, you know what, because I think... Sometimes we're so set in our ways through cultural teachings and we don't realise that actually we can do certain things. It's just that we just didn't explore it at the time. And moving forward in the 21st century, there's a lot of things, you know, we can do. If there's people listening, if they could spread the word as well. I have just set up my Instagram page Mm -hmm. and you'll see some pictures of, you know, my journey, which has just started off.
0: And do you want to say what your
1: Instagram Um, page is? Yeah, yeah, thank you, Ella. It's it's called The Heart Links Everyone. Um, There's pictures of uh, myself, the doctors, some celebrities that I've met. My name's Imran Voraji, but it'll come up as Imran V. Mm -hmm. And it's Heart Links Everyone. And yeah, I could do with all the support from, you know, all my my friends, family, and most importantly, the people who've gone through the same journey as me. Because I need your support as well. Um, And we need to, um, you know, put it out there. Let people know that, you know, uh, we need to raise the awareness.
0: Well, all I can say is you are very, very inspiring. And I think anyone listening to this that has had a heart transplant, going through any form of transplant, I think you'll encourage more people to want to speak out, which is what is great when you have people like you to talk to. Because I think it does encourage people to think, you know what? I can make a difference as well and talk about my journey and the importance of organ donation, which I think is vital. It is absolutely vital.
1: Oh, thank you, Ella. That that means a lot. It really does. I do want to say thank you to a few people as well. Of course. Thanking you for letting me come on air, and you know what? Well, hopefully, it's not the last time. If there's, you know, if we get invited, I'm absolutely, absolutely not. Than the happy. Last. Thank you to Martin, all the crew in Queen Elizabeth, uh, Robin. You know, Doctor Lim, Mus- Mr. Mascaro, Doctor Majid Mukadam who got an M.B. the year I landed at the Queen, uh, at the hospital. Uh, Sue Sinclair, the Silver Fox, he was my uh, anaesthetist. There's so many names, I just can't think of them right now. Then my friends who arranged like, um, sort of biblical gatherings for Mm. me, uh, which was massive. Mum and dad, brothers and sisters, um, and my wife, can't forget her. Um, (laughs) And she was, you know, and my children, and my extended family as well. My mother-in-law, sister-in-law, brother-in-law, all of them, everybody come together.
0: Thank you so much for sharing your story. I really, really appreciate it. And as I said, this will not be the last time that we speak. I'm sure we'll follow you through your journey. You can always come back and update us. You know, whatever you achieve, I definitely, definitely want to keep in touch and hear about it.
1: Thank you, Ella. And the book, um, I haven't mentioned several things, which I'll leave a surprise for the book. And I think um, the audience's Um, When it's ready, I'll let you know, Ella, Mm -hmm. and then I'm going to, and all the proceedings will go to the charity, the hospital, the foundation, I've not even thought about it, but right now, um, it's getting my story out there and telling people there is hope, there's always hope, and don't lose that, keep hold of that, thank you for having me. You are more
0: than welcome, thank you for sharing your story. A huge thank you to Imran for sharing his story. And if you've made it this far, thank you. Please, can you leave a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts? That would be much appreciated. And I'll be back same time next week. See you then.